Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the, with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, Jay, thanks for praying for um, Covenant Presbyterian. I just wanted to mention real briefly, uh, as a very challenging week, as I'm sure you, you know, with another mass shooting in our country. But um, this one is particularly close because Covenant Pres is a church in our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. And um, a very, it's kind of a flagship uh, church in our denomination. And I know three of the pastors on staff at that church I know. I know the Scruggs family. I've known him for, for years, actually, who lost their nine-year-old Hallie um, in the shooting. So it's been a hard week. And uh, I would just, we spent some time praying and lamenting in the adult class during Christian education. So thank you for those of you who are able to be there for that. I would just encourage you in your own life with Jesus, in your own devotional life, to uh, take some time and pray for uh, that church and for uh, the six families who've lost loved ones in the shooting and just for Jesus to be present with them, okay? So uh, please do that this week and um, continue to to grieve as people who have hope, not as those who have no hope. Okay, so no other way to transition, so let's now do the sermon, okay? Um, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams were uh, both presidents of the United States, the second, or the third and the second president, respectively, and during their political careers, they were pretty bitter rivals, but later in their life, they became very close friends, mainly through their correspondence with one another in letter writing. We have many of the letters they wrote to one another in the National Archives now, and those letters have become a bit of a national treasure. If you've read David McCullough's biography on John Adams, one of the main resources he uses in that book are the letters that Adams and Jefferson wrote to one another. And uh, on July 4th, 1826, within hours of one another, both of those men died. On the same day, the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. And uh, famously, Jefferson's last words were, today is the 4th of July. It's almost an eerie coincidence, isn't it? That those two guys, as significant as they were as they were in our nation's founding, died on the same day, which just happened to be the 50th birthday of the United States. And Jefferson lived literally to tell about it with his last words. Last words. They can be laden with meaning and significance. If you had the chance to compose your own last words, what would you say? Today, we conclude this series where we've been looking at David's life by studying together his last words, which were just read for you. They're not 
literally his last words. They're more like a, uh, a last will and testament. They're a poetic encapsulation of how David wanted us to see his life, of the significance of his life. And I find it fascinating that, as we'll see, um, the verses look both backward over David's life and they also look forward to what David's life points to and to what David's life prepares us for. We've come a long way in our study of our friend David. And uh, as we saw last week, David's life is a real life. It's not an idealized life. David has had major wins and David has had huge losses. He's done remarkable things for God and has had stunning failures. He's suffered and he's celebrated. And at this point in his life, he has children, he has grandchildren, and as he looks back on it all, what is it that David wants us to know about his life? That's what these verses are in the Bible for. And I want to show you three things. Three things that summarize the significance of David's life from his own last will and testament. First, David's identity. Second, David's prophecy. And then lastly, our destiny. Identity, prophecy, destiny. If you'll look with me in verse 1, you'll see first David's identity. He looks back over his life. And he tells us who he was. He gives us his identity. What are the things David wanted to be remembered as? Here he tells us. He says, verse 1, that he is the son of Jesse. The son of Jesse. Now, among other things, that means that David is in the line. He is a part of the family of Abraham. Abraham, the father of the Jewish people and the spiritual father of all of us, if we've trusted in Jesus, we know from the end of the book of Ruth, which is right before 1 Samuel, that Jesse comes straight from Abraham's family line. We also see it in Matthew's gospel. He opens Matthew chapter 1 by tracing Jesus' genealogy, and Matthew tells us in Matthew 1.5 that Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. David is saying, part of my identity is that I am an heir to the great promises that God first made to Abraham. The world, God said to Abraham, will be rescued and renewed through your people, through your family, and David is a part of that. You, too, are a part of that. If you've trusted into Jesus Christ, we Christians are the true children of Abraham, a part of the same spiritual family that David is a part of. So his story is in part our story, and our story is in part his He's the son of Jesse. Secondly, David tells us that he is the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob. David is saying here, God plucked me of all people out of obscurity and anonymity and anointed me to be the king, the man who would lead his people Israel. David's saying here that his life is representative of how God often tends to work. The theme of this series has been that God looks on the heart. He does not look on outward appearance like we tend to do. And when David was called and anointed, it wasn't any of David's older, more experienced, more impressive, stronger brothers that God chose. 
It was the youngest. It was the forgotten shepherd boy who hadn't even been invited to the anointing ceremony with Samuel. David's life path, he's saying, is due to God's sovereign purpose and plan. Now, that should encourage you. That should encourage you. God loves to choose and to save and to call the unimpressive, the weak, the overlooked. If you feel forgotten, if you feel like your life isn't contributing much, if you, if you feel that you lack what it takes, you're perfectly qualified to be one of God's children, to be one of God's servants. Your lack of resume is what gets you in the door with God. That has always been and always will be true. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen to what he wrote. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. Lastly, David tells us that he's the sweet psalmist of Israel. You could also translate, he's the favorite of the songs of Israel. And he was, wasn't he? That's what made King Saul so mad. They sang, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. David is at the very heart of the songs and psalms that we still use to this day. At the heart of the Bible's own songbook, the psalms. David saying, this is my identity. This is who my dad was. This is what God did for me. I was nothing and I got raised up. I was anointed by God and people sang a lot of songs, many of which I wrote and many of which I feature in. It's my identity. Secondly, Davis tells, tells us a prophecy, David's prophecy. He looks back over his life in verse 1 and then interestingly in verse 2, he gives really a, prof, a prophetic word. And, and you know that because that word oracle, oracle is used multiple times. That, that's a signal that David is about to give a prophecy. And, and he makes it clearer in verse 2 when he says, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. David's saying, this isn't something that I've made up. It's not something that I've dreamed up. This is the very word of God to me. So what is the prophecy? Look in verse 3, you'll see it there. David writes, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. Now, I had a hard time with that verse this week. I struggled to know exactly what it means. Uh, On first reading, it sounds like kind of just a, a proverbial statement. It's great to have a godly ruler because things will go well for the people. That's what it sounds like. And that's true. That certainly is true as far as it goes, but that just didn't seem to fit, and it didn't satisfy me interpretively, and so I had to do some digging. This is what I do during the week. I dig when I don't know what this means, and uh, I I found that there are some other ways to translate this verse than what the ESV has done, and one of the translations that I thought was a better fit goes like this. A ruler over man will arise, a just ruler who will rule in the fear of God. What David is doing here 
is not just saying, if you have a good king, it's going to be a pretty day outside. David is summing everything up. He's at the very end of his life and looking back and looking forward at the same time. And he's pointing us in this prophecy, in this oracle, to the ruler who will come after him, who will rule over all mankind. And this rule will be just, David says. It will be perfectly godly in the fear of God. Of course, this is a prophecy about David's son, Jesus. In fact, the apostle Peter in the New Testament, when he preaches a sermon on the day of Pentecost, references to David's exact prophecy. He says in Acts chapter 2, listen, brothers, says Peter, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about what? The resurrection of the Christ. What David is saying here is that Jesus Christ is the great and the final king who will rule justly in the fear of God over all mankind. What will that be like? Listen to what David says. Verse 4. He says it will be like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. Not San Antonio July sun. That's not the idea here. Not 99 degree sun. Picture this in your mind. I think about Colorado. Not South Texas. Most summers my family... uh, takes a week in Colorado in the wet mountain valley and we're in this beautiful valley surrounded by stunning mountains and and when you wake up early in the morning just as the sun is is turning from from black to blue and you see the rising sun over over the mountains it's, it's like you know 53 degrees or so in June and the mist is over the field it's wonderful wonderful beautiful captivating That's what David's saying. Jesus' reign will be peaceful like that. It will be life-giving like that. It will be fresh and beautiful, which is why he goes on and says, it's like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. This is Eden language. It's garden language. Jesus, David is saying, one day is going to usher in new creation in all of his creative and recreative beauty and life. This next weekend, we celebrate that. It's Easter next weekend, where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But there's something else important next weekend, too. The Masters. If you don't know what the Masters is, you should, because it's important. It's uh, the best golf tournament in the world, and it's held every year at Augusta National Golf Course in southeast Georgia. And if you've ever seen a picture of Augusta, or better yet, been to Augusta, it's basically Eden. I mean, it is unbelievably lush and fertile and flowers are blooming and it's just an incredibly beautiful place. David is saying one day the entire world will be like that. Augusta National. (laughs) Sounds amazing to some of us. It sounds hopeful. And look at what David says next. He remarks on the certainty of this future king and of this king's future rule. He says, verse 5, does not my house stand so with God? 
For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. David's basically saying, listen, I know the future promise of the reign of Jesus is going to come because God has sworn it to me. He's promised it to me. We studied that just a few weeks ago. Remember the covenant God made with David. It's back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we saw that one thing God promised is that it was going to be an eternal guaranteed home for David and his people. God said, 2 Samuel 7, I will plant garden language. I will plant my people Israel so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more. As formerly, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. It's the promise God made to David. And here's the good news. Here's what David's saying. God's promise of that kingdom has been kept in Jesus Christ. It's been kept. But we still wait. We still wait for it to come in fullness don't we? We still long for and wait for, metaphorically speaking, the sun to shine forth on a cloudless morning, for rain to make grass sprout from the earth. We still wait for the eternal garden city of God to come down where God will wipe every tear from every eye and the dwelling place of God will be with his people. We wait. We wait in a world where we don't see gardens as much as we see minefields. We wait in a world where there are many, many cloudy days. In a world where sometimes it doesn't feel like the sun is ever going to come out again. Because children are murdered in the womb. And sometimes in their school. Because parents grieve unspeakable loss. Because we violate our vows and marriages break down. Because things like Alzheimer's exist and slowly steal the minds of people we love. Because soldiers commit atrocities in the Ukraine. Because trains derail and contaminate entire communities. Because floods And tornadoes destroy because we wake up in the night and we start to cry. And we're not even sure why. Because our bodies hurt and our souls hurt more. We still wait. We still cry. How long? How long, O Lord? We wait in the suffering. We wait in the humiliation of this life. And we believe struggling to sometimes, but we cling fast with David when he says, will he not cause to prosper all my help and all my desire? He will one day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. The best illustration of this ever is the Lord of the Rings. (laughs) Towards the end, uh, the, the contrast that Uh, Tolkien paints between the land of Mordor and its bordering country, the land of Gondor. Mordor is, of course, dark and barren and cloudy. 
and Ash-Laden and Gondor and its chief city, Minas Tirith, were once beautiful, bright, lively places. And you can still, in the stories, see the remnants of it. It's all symbolized in the chief image of Gondor, which is this white tree that's planted in front of the palace. And for centuries, the tree would flower with beautiful white buds. But because there has been no king to rule over Gondor for centuries, the tree has not flowered. But in the story, when the king comes... And when the dark lord and his dark tower are destroyed, the tree finally, it blooms again. And all is made well. Here's how Tolkien describes it. Um, After the destruction of the ring, after the fall of Mordor, during the reign of the king, Aragorn, he writes this. In the king's time, the city was made more fair than it had ever been, even in the days of its first glory. And it was filled with trees, And with fountains, and its gates were wrought of mithril and steel, and its streets were paved with white marble. And the folk of the mountain labored in it, and the folk of the wood rejoiced to come there, and all was healed and made good. And the houses were filled with men and women, and the laughter of children, and no window was blind, nor any courtyard empty. And after the ending of the third age of the world into the new age, it preserved the memory and the glory of the years that were gone. What a picture of what home awaits us if we come to Jesus. That's what David prophesies. We see his identity. We see his prophecy last, our destiny. There are two roads. There are two roads that all of us will take, one or the other. And we have the opportunity to choose which one is ours. That's what David's getting at in verse 6 and in verse 7 and really throughout the entire prophecy. One road, it leads to the king and his kingdom of sun and rain and beauty. It's a road to eternal life. And the way forward, the way onto that road is to trust in this news that David prophesied 3,000 years ago. King Jesus has come. He has suffered. He has died on the cross to pardon our rebellion against God, of which we are all guilty. He has come to rescue us out of the darkness and dreariness of this world, out of the hopelessness of a life apart from him. Jesus was raised from the dead, conquering all of our great enemies, and he offers right now to any who will come complete forgiveness, complete acceptance, complete transformation, trusting in his love for you, seeing in his death and resurrection, and apprenticing your life to his life. That's the road to the kingdom. It's all free all of grace, all are welcome. The second road is the road David describes in verse 6 and 7. It's, it's the road that leads to death and to darkness, to eternal separation from the king and his kingdom. It's the road that the worthless take, he says. They will be blown away, we read, and scattered like thorns are pulled up at Augusta National. This is the road for those who insist on going their own way forever, who insist on living their own lives, being their own king, and ruling their own lives, that they only want to be who they want to be, and they want God out of the picture. 
It's the way of violence, the way of opposition, and those who walk this path will be destroyed. David writes, the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. This is the road every single one of us are on until Jesus comes and calls to us. And we answer his call in faith and repentance, and he sets us on the new path. This is the road some of you may be on. C.S. Lewis was correct when he wrote in The Great Divorce, there are two types of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. Those who want to continue in living for self only will be granted their wish by God in the end. And it will be the worst thing that could ever happen to you because you'll be separated from the source of light, life, and peace. So Christ, through this ancient prophecy, calls you to trust in him, to submit your life to his good kingship, to enter his great kingdom. The opportunity is before every single one of us, men, women, and children. That's what King's Dave, King David's entire life teaches. A greater king has come, and he calls us to allegiance to him, to come under his loving rule. David's life and all of the scripture ask, will you come? Let's pray.